I've been thinking a lot about fathers lately. And next week is Mother's Day, so it totally makes sense that I'm thinking about fathers. Um, and there are good fathers. So I'm going to just throw up a few pictures here of good fathers. Think of Atticus Finch, right, from To Kill a Mockingbird. And um, this guy, Marlon, who would swim across the ocean to find his son, right? Okay. I don't know if you've seen the movie Pursuit of Happiness, but Will Smith in that movie with his son, taking, taking care of his son in really hard circumstances. And then, of course, one of my favorites, Clark Griswold. Um, was an excellent, an excellent father, right? I guess you can kind of weigh that one out. And then, on the other hand, there are not so good fathers, right? So, I'm your father, right? Darth Vader, not the greatest father ever. Cuts his son's hand off and then, uh, or from The Shining, I don't know if you remember this movie, Jack Nicholson's character. Um, does anybody know who this is? Matt Fisher. <laughs> it's not Matt Fisher. <laughs> this is the dad from Home Alone who leaves his kid, right? They go to Europe or whatever, and he leaves his kid in his house. Okay. Not, not a great dad move, okay? Most dads have done something like that, but probably not to that extent, right? And then, of course, you have Clark, Clark, Clark Griswold again. I wasn't sure which one to put him on. Is he a good dad or a bad dad? I don't know, but one of my favorites anyway. So... There's good fathers, there's bad, bad fathers, but no matter what, fathers are an important part of all of our lives, and, and all of us are sons and daughters, right? Um, and as such, uh, fathers play a key role in our lives. They're, they're supposed to give us guidance, right? Fathers are supposed to be uh, fountains of wisdom, if you will, who, who give us wisdom and guidance, who, who lead us, who, who care for us, who nurture us and protect us, who give protection and wisdom, who, who are a source of strength for us, who, who bring correction and discipline when we need it. Now, obviously, some fathers don't do that, and some fathers uh, give us all the wrong lessons in all the wrong ways. You may look at your father and remember something not so great. You might put him on the good side or you might put him on the, on the bad side of the spectrum. I don't know. Um, but sometimes fathers are just simply gone, right? Fathers have, in our culture, have fallen on pretty hard times and increasingly they're absent. And the, the absence of fathers has had a pretty staggering effect on our children. And, and I'm gonna give you some statistics that I actually got from Dr. Noer a few weeks ago. But according to the U.S. Census Bureau, around 18.3 million children, which is about 25% of the children in the United States, live in homes without a biological father, a stepfather, or an adoptive father present. And in Oregon, that's about 166,700, uh, just under 22% of households are headed by a single mother. And single mothers stepping up and, and caring for their kids without a husband or a man in the home of some sort. And that's from the U.S. Census Bureau. And then um, some more statistics here that the, the, rate of, or the rate of fatherlessness has doubled since 1968 was on there as well. Um, the United States has a higher rate of fatherlessness than any other country in the world. Isn't that telling? And then um, of those 25% that we talked about earlier who don't have some sort of father in the home, 
That 25% of the adolescent population accounts for 63% of adolescent suicides, 70% of juvenile detention facility population, 71% of high school dropouts, 75% of adolescent substance abuse center population, and 85% of children and adolescents treated for behavioral disorders, and 90% of runaways. So there's an epidemic, um, you might call it a pandemic, of fatherlessness in our society that's taking a toll on on our young people, on our kids, and maybe it has taken a toll on you. It's had a staggering effect on children. Because the reason is, as, as sons and daughters, God has made us to need fathers. And I think we especially need fathers to tell us who we are, to give us a sense of identity, to, to tell us that we belong somewhere, that, that we're loved. And that is actually what's going to bring us to today's text, which if you read the text, you're kind of like, okay, what does that have to do with what does that have to do with Jesus being baptized? Well, we'll get there. So Jesus comes, and for the first time, Doc just read this text to us, for the first time in the story, we meet Jesus, okay? We meet the adult Jesus coming, and he's probably been hanging out in Nazareth for 30 or so years uh, under the tutelage of his parents, perhaps as a carpenter, and John Uh, the Baptist comes in the wilderness right at the Jordan and all the people are coming to him and then Jesus comes too. He goes to the wilderness, makes the trek down there along with the crowds and the religious leaders to see John and to come and to be baptized. And when he does that, when he comes, John meets with him, the text tells us, and it says that he actually objects. It says that John would have prevented him from doing so because John realizes who this is, right? That Jesus is both greater and mightier than he is. So why in the world would Jesus, who, who is God, right? Why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized? Because John's already said, I baptize you with water for repentance. So why in the world would a perfect person need to be baptized for repentance? And in fact, Jesus has promised to come and be, to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. So in short, what, what John's objection is, he's saying, look, you don't need to repent, Jesus, but I desperately need the Holy Spirit. So why don't we reverse it here? You baptize me with the Holy Spirit and we're good. Well, Jesus stops him there and says, no, let it happen. Verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus really, he sees the bigger picture here. He's he's calling John to the bigger plan of what God is doing and that this is the next perfect step in his plan. And so in doing so, I think John shows, or Jesus shows that he's fulfilling this righteousness. What does he mean by that, to fulfill righteousness? I think he shows it in three ways. First of all, Jesus, when he's baptized, he displays his own humility. He comes and he he displays that he is humble and gentle of heart. He submits himself. The greater submits himself to the lesser and allows him to baptize him. He shows that he truly is the humble servant who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
The second thing I think that Jesus is showing here is he's displaying, he's showing his own obedience to his father. He's submitting to the will of his father and his perfect plan, even when that plan doesn't make sense to everybody else who's standing around. Jesus says, I'm gonna do what my father has asked me to do and fulfill all righteousness through my obedience, and he is gonna do that for the remainder of his life. And then finally, Jesus um, shows that he is fulfilling all righteousness by identifying with God's people, by identifying with God's people. So in Jesus, God has actually become one of us. He's identified as a human with us by taking on our flesh, by taking on our nature, by walking on the, on the earth with, with us. He takes on our humanity, which means that he takes on weakness. He takes on vulnerability. He takes on struggle. And eventually, he will, a few years from this point, he will identify with his people by not just taking on their humanity, but, but taking on their sin. By becoming sin for them, 2 Corinthians tells us that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So he doesn't just take on our humanity, but he takes on our sin. And even further than that, he will identify with his people by ultimately, for those who have faith in him, by bringing them into him so that we can be united with him forever. So so Jesus will unite himself to his people for all eternity. But perhaps most poignantly in this story, Jesus is identifying with his people by becoming everything that Israel could never be. He becomes everything that Israel could never be. He's going to walk the road that they should have walked. He's gonna take on their identity and their burden, their trials and their temptations. And yet instead of falling short, as Israel always did, he will emerge victorious because Jesus is the new and better Israel. So what I want to do is is show this picture to you because you might look at this story and go like, what does that mean? How does, how does Jesus become the new and better Israel here? And let me show you. We're going to have to back up a little bit into, into chapter 2. And there's this progression that Matthew, the, the writer of this gospel, lays out for us in chapter 2, 3, and 4 to show us that Jesus is actually living out the story of Israel and becoming the new and better Israel. And in chapter two specifically, we see that Jesus comes out of Egypt. You remember after he was born, Herod was jealous and wanted to kill him. And so his family fleed with him to Egypt. They went to Egypt. And after Herod had died, they came back from Egypt into Israel and landed in Nazareth. And here's what Matthew says in Matthew chapter two, verse 15. He said, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, that's a quote from the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. And and in its entirety, that verse says this. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So Matthew takes the last part of that verse and quotes it and refers it to 
to, to Jesus, but originally that was speaking of Israel, that Israel was God's beloved son. In, in Exodus chapter 4, 22, God says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So God saw Israel as his son. And now here we have Jesus in chapter two being that son that comes out like Israel came out of Egypt in the Exodus. Now this new son, this beloved son, Jesus also comes out of Egypt. Now, what happened after Israel, after Israel came out of Egypt? Do you remember? Well, that's what we have in chapter three here. They passed through the waters, didn't they? They came to the Red Sea. And what did God do with the Red Sea? God parted it and they walked through the Red Sea on dry land. We see that in Exodus chapter 14. And so here at the Jordan River, as Jesus comes into the water, as he goes through the water in baptism, it's this picture of him really kind of filling up and fulfilling all this story of Israel and what God did for them at the Red Sea. Because the Exodus and and this Exodus through the Red Sea was the great salvation work that God did in the Old Testament. It was the great event that Israel always looked back to, to remember their salvation and what God had done for them. And now, here we have this Jesus, this Son of God, the beloved and eternal Son of God, doing the same thing in his work. Now, at the Red Sea in in Exodus 14, we're told that God's intention there was to get glory. It says that twice in Exodus chapter 14, verses 4 and 17. And then a few verses later, here is what uh, God says. He says, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So, so in that act of salvation at the Red Sea, uh, um, G- God was saving his people for his glory and he was the one doing the work. And now Jesus is, is not only being identified with Israel who also passed through the waters, but he's also foreshadowing his own great act of salvation, the new and better exodus that he will achieve for his people through his death and his resurrection. So in Jesus, God is fulfilling the ultimate intention of the Exodus by by working salvation for us and by fighting for us. And in salvation, we need do nothing. Just as Israel did nothing, they stood by and in faith, they watched God work. And in the same way for our salvation, Jesus has handled it. And guess what? God will get the glory. So Israel comes out of Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. Jesus comes out of Egypt. He goes through the Jordan River, through the waters. And then the next thing we're going to look at next week is chapter 4, that Jesus is now going to go into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, just like Israel went into the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. And they were tempted And they were tested in the wilderness. And next week we will look as Jesus goes into the wilderness because now he stands kind of on the edge of that wilderness preparing himself for a time of hunger and of thirst, of testing and temptation in the wilderness just as Israel did. So this, this picture here, this baptism is really Jesus fulfilling all that Israel was supposed to do and be. And as the new and better Israel, Jesus is also the new and the better and the eternal Son of God. 
Behold, it says, the heavens were opened to him. This is verse, uh, let's see, verse 16. Behold, the, he- the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And, and this, is a, this is a profound and decisive moment in the story of Jesus. This, this moment, this baptism here, there's a lot going on. And here we have God revealing both audibly, there's a voice, and then visibly there's this dove coming down on Jesus. He's revealing something about Jesus. He's saying about Jesus that he is my final, the the ultimate, the perfect revelation of God. And the the book of Hebrews, which is up there on the screen, makes this beautifully clear in chapter chapter one. Where the author writes, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God is perfectly revealing himself through his son. And the first thing we we see in this story in Matthew 3, it says that the heavens were opened. The heavens were opened. And when you see that happen in scripture, there's a few few times where it says the heavens were opened. And this this is basically a euphemism or a turn of phrase that means that God was authoritatively revealing himself in some way. So we see in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, Remember, he was being stoned to death. And he looks up into heaven and he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. A few verses later in Acts, we meet Peter. And Peter's up on the rooftop and he's hungry and he falls into a trance, it says. And he saw the heavens open and God revealed a vision to him. And oftentimes when these visions take place, when when God opens the heavens for someone, what we're given is a front row seat to God's throne room. Consider Isaiah when he saw God. Isaiah chapter six. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So God gives Isaiah a vision of himself on the throne, and then Daniel in chapter 7, verse 9, part of this vision that he has, says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, his throne was like fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. And then at the end, we come to the revelation of John, where, which is just kind of one big opening of the heavens for John to, to see this vision. And here's what he says in chapter four of Revelation. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven, right? The heavens open, a door standing open. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So when the heavens are open, God reveals himself and he sits on his throne as judge and also as one who is going to send salvation. Isaiah himself calls on God and actually asks him to tear the heavens open and come in his saving power. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 11. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come 
down. That's what he wanted, was God to open the heavens and come down. And that's exactly what God has done in Christ. That's exactly what he has done when he sent his Holy Spirit. He has opened the heavens and he has come down to us so that the rift between heaven and earth is beginning to be healed in Christ as God himself breaks through and comes down to us. What a beautiful picture of that movement of God from heaven to earth to show himself and to come in salvation. Now, we not only have the the heavens open, but we also have this dove flying down from heaven, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, it says. And this this image of of the Spirit as as a bird actually goes back to Genesis chapter one at the very beginning. We have the the waters covering the earth in this this chaotic picture, and over that is hovering or brooding the Holy Spirit, flapping over this, this unordered creation, this chaos. And then out of that, obviously, we have the creation. Well, just seven chapters later, in Genesis chapter 8, a dove is flapping over the waters, brooding, hovering over the waters of a flooded earth. And Noah sends a dove out from his ark, and it flaps over the waters and broods over this chaotic, watery globe, and it brings from that a new creation. So there's really this this picture as the Spirit comes as a dove over these waters of of baptism, over Jesus, this is imagery of a new creation. God is saying that what he is doing in Christ is bringing about a new creation, and that's exactly what he does in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter five, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And then at the end, we have God saying again, from his throne in Revelation 21, 5, behold, I am making all things new. So at the baptism, God is saying to us, I am making all things new through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the center of God's new creation. But there's more going on here than that. Remember when a high, a high priest was ordained in the Old Testament, he, he was anointed with oil. When a king was chosen, like David, he was anointed with oil. An anointing was a, was a setting apart of someone as God's special chosen commissioned servant. In fact, the, the word Messiah means anointed one. And Isaiah gives us a picture in in his book three times. He gives us a picture of God anointing his chosen servant who was to come, not with oil. He doesn't anoint his servant with oil. What does he anoint his servant with? With the Holy Spirit. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall shall rest upon him. Just as the spirit was resting on Jesus, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 42, verse one, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And then in Isaiah chapter 61, The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. We remember Jesus quoting this 
verse himself and applying it to himself. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So so we have this promised, great, spirit-anointed servant who is going to come, who is going to proclaim God's kingdom, who's going to bring justice for the downtrodden and the vulnerable, who will eventually suffer, we see in Isaiah 52 and 53, and he will suffer for the salvation of many. And this servant, this spirit-anointed servant that Isaiah was prophesying about is Jesus himself the very son of God. And so this baptism is an anointing of sorts. It's an ordination. It's a, it's a commission from God the Father himself. And as Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness, he's filling up what this servant was supposed to be, and he's being validated as Isaiah's promised servant. Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of God, is now being commissioned by the Father, with the Spirit, for the work that he's about to do. So if you haven't noticed, there's a lot going on in these few verses. And Jesus' baptism, I mean, that just shows to me that Jesus' baptism is an important, decisive event that defines and colors and shapes the ministry of Jesus, this upcoming ministry that we're gonna see in Matthew. And at the core of all of this, I think is this question, what does God think, what does the Father think of Jesus? Well, here's what he thinks of Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is God's beloved son. If you read this and miss that, then you're missing the complete purpose of what this is trying to say. Jesus is God's Son, his beloved son, his eternal beloved son. There is no beginning or end to the father's warm approval and love of his son, Jesus. Thus, not only is is Jesus' identity as the eternal son of God, but he is the beloved son of God, the one that the father delights in. And if you want to know what God loves, if you're wondering, what are the things that God loves, look at Jesus. Because the Father loves Jesus more than anything. If you want to know what is worthy of your love, look at Jesus. One of the questions I have when I read this story is, Who heard the words? Like, who saw the dove? Was there a crowd around that that heard the words, that heard, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased? Did that crowd see, see the heavens open and the spirit coming down like a dove? We know from the book of John that John the Baptist saw that happen. He says, I saw the spirit come down. I heard the voice say this about him. In the book of Mark, I believe, The the phrase is not, this is my beloved son, but you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. So the father is addressing the son directly, but here it says, this is my beloved son, as if God is speaking to the crowds and all around, or perhaps 
The question is, who needs to hear this? Who needs to hear that that Jesus is the beloved son? Who needs to hear that God is well-pleased in him? When Jesus says, this is my, or when God says, this is my beloved son, he's speaking to an audience. Well, who's the audience? Perhaps, could I suggest that that audience is us? Maybe it's you and maybe it's I who need to hear this the most. We have discovered in this story the Father's very own opinion of Jesus. And this should change everything uh, for us. And it should change in at least two ways, and I'll just give you those. That first of all, it should cause us to worship Jesus. Jesus is the beloved, the eternal son of God. He is the most weighty person who has ever lived. He is the most substantive being in the the universe. He is like the sun at the center of the solar system and all of creation revolves around him, is held together by him. Jesus is everything. And if you doubt it, look at this story because even God the Father thinks Jesus is everything. It's not just me making it up. Even God thinks it. And if we're supposed to love the things that God loves, then we should love Jesus the most because the Father loves him the most. So worship Jesus. Look to Jesus. Pour out all your energy to worship and love him and know him and draw closer to him. That is what you are made for. That is what he's called you to. That's what he's given you opportunity to. Worship Jesus, the eternal beloved son of God. And then secondly, I would say this, that you can only know who you truly are in Christ. You can only know who you truly are in Christ. You see, Jesus was the true and better Israel. Jesus was the true and better son of God. And Jesus is also the perfect human, the perfect picture of who God made us to be. Jesus' identity is the basis for our new identity because we're in him, and because we're in him, we are the beloved of God. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, he has drawn you into himself, and in Jesus, God is well pleased with you. Amen. Amen. Because God is eternally well-pleased with his son, he is also eternally and perfectly well-pleased with you and with me. Can you hear him saying to you, and maybe you are one who has needed a father to say this to you your entire life, you are my beloved. In you, I'm well-pleased. Can you hear God the Father saying that to you today? And on top of that, he doesn't just tell you he loves you, but he says, you know what? I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to give you my spirit to remind you of my love for you. Just as I gave my spirit to Jesus. Now, if you can't hear that today, if your mind or your heart just can't get there, perhaps you can taste it or or smell it or touch it. And we have the opportunity this morning to come to the communion table and to see and taste and touch and smell even the love that God has for us because Jesus 
didn't just come and be baptized, but Jesus lived a perfect sinless life and then he gave up that life so that you and I could be drawn into his life. And so during this next song, we're gonna take communion and we have these little communion packets. Hopefully you picked one up on the way in. If not, just at the beginning of the song, you can grab one up here or back in the lobby. And I encourage you during that song to take out the little wafer Put it on your tongue and remember the body of Christ that was broken and given for you so that you could become a beloved son or daughter of the King, of the Father. And as you drink that juice, remember the blood that was poured out for you to bring you into covenant with God as his child, as his loved one. Let's pray. Our Father, as we look at this story, as we consider all of the amazing things that are happening in this moment of Jesus' baptism, of Jesus fulfilling all righteousness in himself. Jesus, you are the new and better Israel. You are the, you are the eternal and best son of God, the only begotten of the Father. And Jesus, you are our savior. You are our king and our Lord. And, and I pray this morning that you would draw our eyes to you as in all that you are and all your beauty, all your splendor, but that you'd also draw our eyes to your sacrifice and the work that you've done on our behalf. And in that, as we consider Jesus dying in our place on the cross, we see the love the Father has for us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. Thank you for drawing us into your family. Father, help us to know it today in your name. Amen.